Hi, I'm Estrella Nori, and today I want to tell you about how together we can change the world. A few years ago, I was introduced to a new initiative called Water on Demand and how it has the potential to save our most vital resource, water. Water across the globe is in trouble. And unfortunately, the United States is no exception with droughts, soaring water rates, and decreased quality. Today, the US recycles less than 1% of its wastewater. On top of that, industry and agriculture account for 89% of freshwater usage in the US, which they then pollute and send back into the already broken and old systems controlled by local governments. And now those government bodies are telling businesses, we can't take your water anymore. Sorry, treat it yourself. The challenge for these businesses is that it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to treat their own water. Expensive machines, installation, expertise, and maintenance. They just can't do it. But with Water On Demand, we are giving investors the ability to invest in water systems that can be dropped in place to create instant infrastructure for businesses and communities. Water gets treated and recycled. And as those consumers use water, they pay for it, just like they already pay for their own water bills. Now, for the first time ever, you can invest in the biggest disruption the water industry has ever seen. We could be sitting on the opportunity of a lifetime. And we are. Learn more about Water On Demand by visiting us online at waterondemand.net. That is fun. Uh, Estrella is so cool. She's so direct and strong. And uh, we're building the entire upcoming Regulation A offering around her as the spokesperson. Uh, but there's other parts to it, as we'll be showing you, uh, including this cool NASDAQ market site recording we made this week. Stay tuned. You'll be seeing more about that. But let's go ahead and get started with the presentation. What are the blue gold? And that is now trademarked with the United States Patent Office. Um, and we are really about the emerging income asset that is water. And it's getting more and more exciting. You know, we keep hearing about, you know, how um, Klaus Schwab is an evil man and so forth. And uh, it turns out <laughs> uh, its relevance is fading. A lot of people just not showing up. You know, it always looks the glitziest when it's on its way out the tubes. Literally, Schwab himself is not showing up. Neither is Bill Gates. Um, and main people who are supposedly driving this. Um, but here's the problem that these guys have. Their vision, of course, is an interconnected global economy. Um, but, and this didn't happen with the COVID recession. It actually happened starting in 2008. The value of global imports and exports as a percentage of GDP has been dropping from really uh, over 60% down to 56.5%, and it's on its way down, right? <clears throat> that damage to the devil's mission has accelerated over the past 12 months. So last week, we had this really interesting uh, interview of Peter Zehan about this whole issue of deglobalization and who's going to survive and so forth. And the U.S. actually is in good shape. But this also means that the attempts by the World Economic Forum since 1971 to try and knit the world together in this bond that they control is kind of kind of becoming a problem. And the world is becoming a much more disconnected place. And there's some of that's actually pretty good. You know, we 
why why have a supply chain that stretches you know five eight ten thousand miles right and sure enough the united states is pushing ahead with a robust industrial strategy and aimed at boosting its prowess and that is really uh what we're experiencing in texas where as you know our revenues q3 2021 and q3 2022 tripled and that's recognized revenues that's you know properly uh, disclosable recognized revenues. And we think that we'll end up pretty much in that range by the end of the year. Why? A lot of it has to do with US sourcing and the fact that we, uh, you know, we sold so much consumables. I think our consumable sales were right up there with the rest of the, of the business. So very exciting. So that's, that's an interesting situation and worth looking at and remembering that it's really going to be about island regions of the world. Okay, population growth and decline. Well, you know that some countries are, are winning the game, some countries are losing. Let's take a look. This is uh, from Visual Capitalist. This is the beginning, 1973 to 1993, this period here. And obviously, <clears throat> we had China number one, India number two, United States number three, Russia number four, Indonesia. Now, here's what's interesting. Japan, 110. Brazil, Germany, Bangladesh, etc. Nigeria, all the way down here at number 11, and then Mexico. Let's see where we ended up in 2023. Wow. India has taken off. China is on a cliff, falling down a cliff because of their, of their one-child policy that basically uh, was a very bad idea. Nigeria has risen, and it is expected to surpass the U.S. U.S. is still number three here, 340 million. You see they were at uh, 207, now it's 340. Nigeria was all the way down here at 60 million, and they have grown to 224. That is astonishing. Brazil has lost some ground. Brazil was at number seven, still number seven, but... Um, Relative, for example, to Nigeria and Pakistan. Pakistan was all the way down here, number 10, and the same thing. Now, whereas Pakistan grew, Bangladesh did not really. It stayed flat. Russia is in number nine, and Russia was actually right behind the U.S. at the end of World War II. What is not well known about Russia is that they have a population time bomb. Um, they are not getting the births that they should. And as a result, as Peter Zehan predicted, they are in a very tough place with their population uh, decline. Uh, Japan is astonishing from 110 million all the way down to number 12, 123. So relatively speaking, a drop, and they're dropping fast. Germany was up here at number eight with 79 million and number 19 now. So this is what the whole chart looks like, just so you get a visual on it. You know, I wanted to give you a breakdown, but... You can see how the trends go. The U.S. is a steady growth um, player, that black ribbon there. And, of course, one thing, I mean, we have a big immigration problem, but it does good things for our population. Now, could we choose to have, you know, um, do we want people from other countries or, I mean, what do we want, right? And how does it uh, affect our welfare policies? A number of major issues with immigration that needs solving. But one good thing about it is that it keeps our population growing, and that is essential for a country to be strong. That's in total opposition to what major global population planners have been pursuing for the last 100 years, which is they want, they were trying to slow everything down 
unfortunately, when you slow things down too much, then they come crashing down, as we've seen in Italy, Japan, and of course, China. All right, that's very interesting stuff. Real estate, what's going on in real estate? Well, there's actually some booms going on. For example, where I live, Clearwater, Florida, there's a nice little boom going on, residential. And I, I just see that that um, rates are dropping again, especially on FHA rates. That's good. Um, I was just learned that I could get I could refi for 1.69% on my basic uh, FHA guaranteed loan. That's very cool. So that is actually good news. But here's the problem. The huge REITs, the real estate investment trusts are in trouble. Um, there is a lot of redemptions going on that are hitting people pulling out cash. And when you can't get your money back, that only makes things worse, right? And then we that was BlackRock. And then we also have, um, yeah, interesting how the COVID low was March 20 right there, 2020. We're actually right back at that low in terms of that BlackRock UK property fund. Has a lot to do with the UK's economy, which is in deep trouble due to the skyrocketing price of energy, which is entirely a self-inflicted wound. Um, and also we have Blackstone is capping redemptions on its uh, real estate income trust. So someone yelled fire in a crowded theater, investors dashed to the exit. Thank you, Fed. Withdrawals. Look at those withdrawals taking off. So it's a problem, and by no means all rates are in trouble. But some of the biggest institutional ones that are that are maybe tied to the political situation have a real problem. Anyway, that is why you should be very, very aware of what's going on in real estate and know where you're putting your money. All right. Now, fractured markets. Um, originally, last week, I was promising a piece by FT, but actually... <laughs> You know, I, I I watched it. It was so boring. So instead, I went to another one, which I'll get to shortly. Meanwhile, quick remark about crypto. Uh, crypto funding is down, but still up above previous years. So compared to 2018, which is the last the last boom, uh, we're actually well above it. So that's, you know, despite all the bad news in crypto. And we know that Sam Bankman fraud, you know, defrauded a lot, but it wasn't anywhere close to 21 billion. So uh, it's worth thinking about. Now, as you can see, if you look at the black, the dark green, the light green, and light S green, that's how the year went. And as you see, it's slowing down throughout this year. And then in 2021, Q4 was very strong. So there was a big slowdown between 21 and 21 and 22. Unicorns. What about unicorns? Well, Terrence Rohan said, oh my gosh, there's a 1,205 unicorns. That is worth a billion or more. And then guess who got into this story? Elon Musk. Not for long. And uh, yeah, that's, that's way too many unicorns. That's just money being thrown at stuff. And mo most of these, I look at these, like I have no idea who, what these things are. Anyway, uh, I guess you can get to a billion dollars pretty easily. But this is actually, you know, it's good that the air is being popped out of the balloon now. Uh, so that, you know, perhaps one of these days we can be a, a unicorn in a in a restored market because it has been very, very crazy. Okay, this is the one that I wanted to get to by Deutsche Welle, which is the uh, German broadcast network. Pretty interesting. It's got some good news in it, too. The world is in the midst of an economic downturn. Certainly a global recession is a major risk. Three of our biggest economic engines are sputtering from war in Europe 
to a lockdown China and rising inflation. A bitter blend is hitting the world's economic powerhouses. And there is no 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 sort of point of light at the end of the tunnel here because it all now begins to feed on each other. In this video, we will be asking what makes this economic downturn so different from the Great Recession in 2008. This is a recession that is uh, unlike perhaps the financial uh, crisis recession that was due to the financial crisis, uh, that is being felt by every single individual. Definitely for the years to come, we are going to witness a world from a Chinese perspective that we are not accustomed to. We will discover the paradoxes that make this downturn unique. So the labor market actually looks quite good, um, which is one of the confusing things about today's economy. We will assess how easily this crisis can be remedied compared to the last. We don't have tools at the moment that could address the recession that we're facing. And we will look at the countries who are bucking the negative trend. That's all coming up on Business Beyond. Both the IMF and the World Bank are warning that we are edging towards a global recession. But determining what counts as a recession and what doesn't can be complicated. There is no official definition. A common rule of thumb is that when an economy experiences two consecutive quarters of negative growth, it's in recession. But a decline in GDP isn't the only indicator. Other metrics like unemployment levels and consumer confidence also play a role. People lose their jobs, they have to cut into their savings. Unemployment can be extremely disruptive personally, not just for economic reasons, but for one's sense of well-being. For a recession to happen, many factors are at play. That's why declaring a recession is often in the hands of national organizations that analyze business cycles. Like national recessions, global ones also don't have a clear-cut definition. They happen when a large number of major economies are going through an economic slump. In our globalized economy, a recession in one place spells trouble for another. Knock-on effects reverberate throughout the globe. And that's what has analysts worried right now. Certainly a global recession is a major risk, but our current forecast has what we would call a growth recession. We do not have a contraction in the global economy, but we have subpar growth uh, with rising unemployment. GDP growth in the global economy is slowing down. The International Monetary Fund projects that a third of the world economy will likely be in a technical recession next year. The US and Eurozone are facing an especially gloomy outlook. In the US, economic growth is declining to a fifth of its 2021 levels next year. In the Eurozone, growth is almost completely stalling. For many of us, the phrase global recession still conjures up images of publicly shamed bankers and people losing their houses. To understand the current economic downturn better, it's worth revisiting what happened in 2008 during the financial crisis. It pushed the world's banking system towards the edge of collapse and left borrowers no longer able to afford their homes. And it all started with a housing bubble in the US. A whole industry ballooned around giving people mortgages. Mortgage brokers eventually got greedy. They started giving out loans to people that didn't make enough money to pay them back. Those mortgages were combined into big packages and sold to banks. Ultimately, the inevitable happened. Borrowers couldn't pay their loans back and the house of cards collapsed, causing a banking crisis. 
The first recession was a recession that was essentially one that was built on fear of banks and mistrust between banks because they weren't sure anymore which of the banks was solvent and which one wasn't, so they stopped lending altogether. Banks had to be rescued from ruin by government bailouts, and the crisis spread beyond the United States. European banks had bought a lot of bad mortgages from the US, so they also collapsed and had to be bailed out by governments. Many European countries eventually could no longer pay their own debt. Government budgets were squeezed, resulting in years of austerity and dramatically impacting the lives of millions of Europeans. So how is the current economic downturn different? This time around, money isn't the issue. There is no capital shortage. In fact, if anything, banks and the, cap the, 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 the capital markets are sitting on lo loads of money that at the moment they can't really spend because there is nothing that comes into the EU economy. So this time, the world isn't short of cash, but it's short of almost everything else. When the pandemic struck, the fragility of supply chains became apparent. Factories from Asia to Europe and North America halted production, sending the global economy into a freefall. As countries emerged from lockdowns, demand for goods and services returned faster than supply. Now, swelling orders have outstripped availability. Businesses across the economy have struggled to hire workers food and energy prices are on the rise. Adding to that, the world's manufacturing powerhouse has closed shop. In China, lockdowns continue to wreak havoc. Xi Jinping's zero-COVID policy aims to isolate every individual case of COVID-19. Its strict implementation means regular shutdowns make business and manufacturing extremely difficult. When they get waves, you know, entire cities are shut down and that affects the supply chain throughout the world. Now, shortages of one thing have turned into shortages of another. A scarcity of semiconductors has halted car manufacturing. And unlike during the US-led financial crisis, it's Europe that feels unique pressure now. With the world's supply chains in trouble already, one added factor made for the perfect storm on the continent the war in Ukraine. Which uh, woke us up to the realization that uh, Europe is uh, un uh, relying on it for one of the most important inputs for its production, namely energy, on a very, very unreliable partner. For decades, Russia was Europe's main provider of gas, delivering almost half of the bloc's gas supply. But that's drastically changed this year as Europe has rushed to find alternative energy sources. Europe needs to reduce energy demand by 10%. That already means that we will get into an economy that uh, produces, uh, produces much less. But it's not just energy that's become a casualty of the war. Ukraine is one of the biggest agricultural exporters in the world. Since the Russian invasion, food prices are on the rise. For the European and for the global economy, supply shortages and a drastic rise in food and energy costs make for a toxic cocktail. If the demand stays the same and the supply of a good falls, then the price rises. If you have that across the economy as a whole, in the labor market, in many goods markets, in energy markets and in food markets, then you have a generalized inflation for the first time. The world is facing an inflation crisis. The US, the United Kingdom and the Eurozone are especially feeling the price surge. In the EU, inflation is the highest it has ever been. In the US, it's at a 40-year high. 
High inflation is a major challenge for all of us. Around the world, too much money is chasing too few goods. That means items we need for our day-to-day -day lives are getting more expensive. It's also what makes this economic downturn so different from the last. This is a recession that is uh, unlike perhaps the financial uh, crisis recession that was due to financial crisis uh, that is being felt by every single individual simply because all of us have to use energy at home. And, and all of us uh, understand that when inflation is high, with the purchasing power of our salaries or of our income and of our wealth reduces. The cost of living crisis confronting the world is now causing a shift in global economic policymaking. Central bankers say they've had enough of rapid price rises. We took today's decision and expect to raise interest rates further because inflation remains far too high and is likely to stay above our target for an extended period. We have both the tools that we need and the resolve it will take to restore price stability on behalf of American families and businesses. Price stability is the responsibility of the Federal Reserve and serves as the bedrock of our economy. In 2008, central banks in Europe and the US reduced interest rates to encourage banks to start lending and help economies weather the storm. This time, they're flipping the script. For every central bank that is currently cutting interest rates, there are now 25 that are raising them, according to Deutsche Bank, a ratio that hasn't been seen in decades. By making it more expensive to buy a car, get a mortgage, or use a credit card, they hope to reduce people's spending and slow inflation. But the tools that will fix rising prices also stall economic growth. It means that we have two problems. We have both low growth and high prices, and therefore the policy mix that needs to address this crisis needs to be quite different. Uh, and also the policy mix is a little bit more awkward, if you like, in terms of meeting uh, the two problems. Central banks are facing a difficult balancing act. Raising interest rates could further sink a rudderless economy. Doing nothing means letting inflation run loose. There's several real questions that will determine how the next year plays out. Um, first, how effective are central banks in reducing the inflation without sending the economy into you know, a worse recession that would be required? It's very difficult to get monetary policy just right because there are substantial lags in the system, right? So what's perfect for today, uh, policy-wise, we often can't tell until six months down the road. And something else feels different about this economic downturn, especially in the world's biggest economy, the United States. For many people, the word recession means worrying about losing your job. That's because the two usually go hand in hand. In the US, GDP went down in 2008 and unemployment went up. This July, the country's unemployment rate was the lowest it has been in half a century. And it has stayed exceptionally low since, despite an economic downturn. So the labor market actually looks quite good, um, which is one of the confusing things about today's economy. You have some indicators that look very positive and, and um, consistently so, and you have some indicators that are far more worrisome. But the, the labor market indicator in the U.S. in particular is, is very strong. Unemployment is quite low. Labor force participation is good. Um, job openings are high relative to the number of people seeking jobs. So this is a, a time of enormous labor market opportunity and strength for a lot of American workers. 
This is a unique time in the U.S. Companies can't afford to lose employees because many of them are having problems finding workers in the first place. But the U.S. is facing a paradox. Despite a strong job market, people are worried, especially those looking to start their careers. Current class of 2023 uh, is certainly worried about the current economic situation. So about 50% of our respondents from one of our most recent surveys shared that they absolutely have some concerns and anxiety. Things are looking good and gloomy at the same time, and that is making Americans feel uneasy. Consumer sentiment is a measure that shows how people feel about the economy and whether they will spend or save their money. Right now, people are only feeling slightly more optimistic than during the 2008 recession. And what does that mean for the future of the U.S. economy? The job numbers are looking much rosier than during the last economic downturn. But how people- I'm getting comment uh, from Ray Laban. All this is informative, but disconnected from the topic at hand, origin clear. Actually, I'm getting somewhere with this. And uh, I think it's worthwhile. But let me go ahead and just, you know, a lot of this you know already. So I'm just going to go ahead and fast forward here a little bit because there's some good news at the very tail end of this that will, I think, give us some context and then we can comment on it. So thank you, Ray. The is so low is because it's administered price there. And, you've, and because that has kept that low, the central bank has not been under so much pressure to hike. The subsidies have amounted to a hefty bill for Indonesia's government and might not be sustainable in the future. At the same time, rising commodity prices around the world have actually helped this economy. Indonesia's coal exporters are bringing in record earnings. The country is looking at a promising 2023. So at 4.7%, I would still say their growth outlook is, is looking pretty resilient uh, next year, especially, you know, when we talk about uh, major economies entering recession. At the beginning of this video, we looked back on the recession of 2008 and we asked how this economic downturn will be different. What the experts we spoke to described was a crisis not triggered by banks, but one partially set off by war and by politics. Uh, there's some things that are inevitable, like standing up for democracy as the Europeans and as Ukraine and as the United States are trying to do right now. I think, you know, the cost of that um, is not zero, right? And But some things are worth paying a cost for. Um, of course, governments should do whatever they can to cushion their citizens from these costs. But I don't think telling citizens that the cost is zero is, is realistic or true. And there are some things in life that are you know, worth making a sacrifice for. With bank bailouts and regulation, policymakers have the tools to react to the financial crisis. But much of what's happening right now is outside of policymakers' control. The mechanisms uh, to address the supply side crisis are you know, nothing more than invade China and force them to, to produce semiconductors, invade Russia and force Putin to, 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 to stop invading Ukraine and, and, and loosen energy supply and so, so on. And that's obviously not going to happen. So we don't really have tools in the normal state of affairs. We don't have tools at the moment that could address the recession that we're facing. While central banks intervened to stimulate the economy in 2008, they are adding to a downturn this time. The medicine against rising prices is also poison for the economy. And unlike the 2008 financial crisis, this downturn is having a much more obvious impact on our daily routines. Everybody understands um, 
that we cannot switch on the heating uh, the coming winter as much as we did in other years, or we are going to see an exorbitant bill. Uh, everybody who has a car will have seen it uh, in the run-up to the uh, to today to the financial to, in the run-up to the energy crisis how petrol. Uh, was so expensive in filling up the car. So this is a crisis that I think dissipates across everybody in the society and therefore it's much more felt. It's not just about the economic impact. Uh, the households feel it. You, you feel it immediately in your, uh, in your household uh, uh, income. But there are also positive developments that run opposite to the financial crisis. We are in a moment where there is great talent shortage. And so even if we do go into a recession, there's still lots of jobs that are available and that are out there. We are at a unique inflection point in the global economy. Compared to the last crisis, the one we are facing now is much more multifaceted. War in Ukraine, an energy crisis, soaring living costs and widespread pessimism are combining into an unpredictable economic concoction. And that's all from this Business Beyond episode. If you enjoyed it, please hit like and subscribe and check out one of our other videos. Until next time and take care. A lot of this, of course, is stuff we know, but here's what's going on. This recession is a uh, forced error, right? Um, 2008 was the result of very bad lending practices. 2022, going into 2023, has a lot to do with very rickety systems. I'm not going to give a position on this war business, but it's definitely a mismanaged situation. And the poor Europeans are, are paying the cost in terms of energy. My point is, is that all these existing asset classes are highly um, unpredictable right now. I try and invest in, for example, oil ETFs, and then it goes sideways. I'm like, wait, there's an oil high demand, and then I, I get out and I try something else. It's very hard to invest. It's very hard to find uh, something that is not um, affected by geopolitics. This is a geopolitical recession from, and again, not taking a position, all the COVID stuff that went down, what the, what the world chose to do was a geopolitical decision. And so here we are. What I'm trying to say here is that I am so excited about water being this new asset class. Why? Because it's emerging just at a time when the others are just sort of shaking in their boots and having a hard time and to stay the course. Um, and obviously they're trying to figure out what to do, but then they these giant bailouts and so forth. And it's, it's, it's going to be pretty interesting to say the least. While at the same time, we, with our uh, water uh, incubations, right? Because we're we're building Origin Clear as an incubator, the first incubator in the water industry ever. Because water industry grows from you know mom and pops growing and then getting bought up by the big guys. That's how they do it. But um, high textile incubations make sure that technologies get put in there, and so that's what we're doing is we're bringing new approaches, technologies, financial systems, etc to bear. And that is a completely different way of, of looking at the water industry and creating these creating water as an investable asset. And that is so exciting. It's the right time for water. Now, I have a couple of questions here. Keith Rutan, supply chain definitely affecting Origin Clear. No, exactly the opposite. What we have is a real strength, competitive strength. Why? Because our materials are low tech. Those, those uh, high density polyethylene or polypropylene 
uh, enclosures are U.S. sourced. They don't have to come from abroad. So we don't have, you know, complex chips and so forth. It's pretty simple stuff. So we're actually hurting uh, our competitors, which are in steel, fiberglass, concrete, and other more complex systems when it comes to, for example, pump stations. So um, we're very happy with the supply chain situation. Now, it's true that there are some spot shortages in, in areas like pumps, we're seeing delays of 120 days, let's see. But that's starting to ease. It's starting to go away. So uh, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not foreseeing supply chain problems for 2023 in uh, origin clear. All right, new to the street. So here we are. The night before, we were at Tony's DiNapoli. And here we are at Tony's DiNapoli having a nice dinner. There's Vince Caruso, the uh, the owner of um, New to the Street. On the right there is Charlie Devanzo, and yours truly and Ken uh, having a nice meal. And then the next morning, I was looking down from my from my hotel and looking down at the Nasdaq. These are the trading floors, and right there in that in that, in that rotunda is where we ended up being taped. So and. Here we are inside that um, was called the market site. It's kind of cold. This is Jane who, who was uh, interviewing us. And there's the actual interview. We will be giving you a clip from that next week. Here is the, the release that came out this morning, a series of six monthly interviews. Uh, this time it was kind of myself in the future. It might, it might be just me, just Ken or us together again, whatever. And, you know, with, Again, important news. Remember that we have some very important um, news coming out about our annual report, for example. We have a spinoff that's being set up with our pump station business that's booming. Um, and so this gets syndicated to Newsmax, Fox Business, uh, Bloomberg TV, and a bunch of streaming platforms. So each month we'll be making a report and it goes out. We could never have done this before because it wasn't realistic to, to even claim that we were getting there. Okay, so that's it. So with that, I'm going to invite Mr. Kennan. And Ray, uh, do you buy or fabricate RO systems? We fabricate the RO systems. We have a comprehensive fabrication. Go to progressivewater.com and you will see our systems. Well, there we are. So with there that, we are. just um, bring us to the freewheeling discussion. Um, you know, which is necessarily a, a it's non-freewheeling in one key area. But what is important to, 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 to really underline here is that um, more and more our vision of the, like the breakup of AT&T, the government breakup of centralized water is creating opportunities. We were among the very first to see this. And not only did we invest in technology in 2018 with the compact systems, but then starting in 2020, we started solving the financial issue, which people in our industry, in the aquatech industry are saying, we got a problem. People don't have capital. Right. And did you see one reason why I played that Deutsche Welle uh, report was it was saying there's lots of money looking to be spent. There's lots of money. It's not necessarily looking to be spent by the small business owner, right? No, they want to put it into big projects, right? right. The banks want to put... You know, like, okay, I, I need to find a place to put a half a billion dollars or a billion dollars. Like, not a problem. How many investors, though, went to look? I, I, I'm speaking to these guys. A lot of guys went, to, a lot of guys who could lick their wounds, they went to, a lot of guys went to cash and big money certainly went to cash. So if you think that the big institutional money were the guys who took a 70% dive in Facebook and Tesla, think again. Okay. Um, you know, they, they went, 
maybe they didn't go short, but they certainly closed out their long positions at some of these highs earlier in the year because there, there were a million signs that this was coming, right? Um, unfortunately, <clears throat> the average retail investor and, and some of the smaller investors, they get they get stuck in that loop of listening to Jim Cramer, right? And he's saying, everything's great. You got to buy the market. And they're going, okay, you know, I, because they're not they're not trained uh, and and just and rightly so they're not trained to to watch the um watch the global trends um what i love talking about and jane was a great great interview um and it's funny because she got it right away and it's always fun right because sometimes you find yourself having to explain the concept a couple of times she got it immediately um what uh to 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 expand on your point what we're doing today was impossible without the marriage of financial technology and miniaturized, containerized systems, right? The minute you dig a hole, it's absolute risk. Uh, you know, it's, it's absolute default risk. You cannot do a water as a service, um, uh, water as a service model unless it's, you know, a city, uh, a municipality, someone with, is the ones who's default proof. Yeah, if, if you're Procter and Gamble or Coca Cola, you have right, exactly right. So if you're in, and they and they guess what? They don't need you. They they bought it, you know. So and I was explain, you know. So Anheuser Busch, Pepsi, you know, all those guys um, who would be fabulous for a a a commercial, you know, in other words, non municipal, non uh, you know, you know, kind of private sector use of this um, uh, of this of this modality. Um, they, they don't need the money, you know? So um, it, unfortunately, 90 plus percent of the water pollution is not coming from Anheuser-Busch or Pepsi. It's coming from the smaller end users who have that it's the money, you know, it's the money conundrum. And, um, you know, I'm really looking forward, you know, we got to, we kind of touched on the subject in, in this week's interview, um, but to be able to kind of continue to expand on that in, in pieces, I think will be very interesting. Yeah. And there's things coming, for example, you know, the water on demand pilot programs. Uh, I'm going to make a note to report on that next week because we are we're well along with um, some of these pilot programs. It's there's there's no lack of of excitement by these potential clients, but we're having to put in place like they went, oh, well, what about my buyout option? Oh, cripes, we got to put together a buyout option. So a lot of legal work is going on. And that's mm -hmm. part of what we're doing. Measure uh, twice, cut once. Well, we, we, no, we cannot do a 15-year service contract that puts you upside down. Right, exactly. So it's measure 10 times cut once. Right, I got it. Yeah. You know, we're being very, very deliberate. And sure. Colin Sherman joined us as project engineer, and I think uh, for Water Demand. So I'm going to bring him on. It'll be a great show. So next week, we will have some uh, clips from the from the taping. We'll, we'll discuss the pilot programs for Water Demand. We'll discuss uh, Colin Sherman, his role. As he comes on, he's getting rid of uh, his his prior assignment, and he'll be ending up full time pretty soon. And he's just a fantastic project engineer uh, because you know he's got to take over that. Uh, there's a lot of work there to be done. So we are rolling things out, and there's also going to be very interesting announcements coming about how we're creating more value insight water demand with intellectual property. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. So with that, I'm going to say, bid you all a fond adieu. And um, I'm going to put it up on screen, how you get a hold of, there you go, oc.go slash Ken gets you there, uh, or just email invest at originclear.com. 
And uh, with that, I think I think we call it a day, my friend. Or a night, as it were. Well, it's a day in Hawaii, okay? That's true. <laughs> it's like lunchtime for me. You know, it's just like, oh, it's only half a day today. Ken, you're doing a great job. Thank you for the hard work. And let's keep on rocking. If you're interested in what's going on, please schedule with Ken. Thank you so much, everyone. Good night, folks. 